0: Good evening ladies and gentlemen. Um, my name's Alastair Newton and I'm currently the President of the British Society for Middle Eastern Studies. So it's my pleasure and privilege this evening to introduce, uh, to introduce our guest speaker. But first of all, before I do that, um, there's a certain amount of procedural matters through which I have to go. Not least, welcoming you the audience and thanking you for turning out on a rather chilly January evening. Um, I should say a couple of words about Brismis because I'm delighted to see that there are a lot of non-members in the room this evening, which is a reflection of the fact that we are organising this event jointly with the London School of Economics and in particular the Middle East Centre of the London School of Economics. And our thanks goes to the LSE, who were also very supportive of our annual conference last year, and in particular uh, to Bob Lowe and Dania akkad of the LSE Middle East Centre. And in speaking of the LSE, I should also thank LSE events and our wonderful stewards uh, and other technical staff who are, without whom these events simply would not be possible. Now, BRISMIS, British Society for Middle Eastern Studies, um, this is our 40th anniversary year, just starting. Um, It's a big year for us. Uh, We will be producing special editions of this, our flagship journal. This is the latest edition which uh, reached me in the post just a couple of days ago. We do regular newsletters. We have an annual conference coming up in Dublin. There will actually be another annual lecture this year because this is actually the 2012 annual lecture which slipped slightly in order to find a convenient date and we are planning other events. Please do talk to myself or Louise Hazy, our administrator, if you're interested in membership and let me tell those of you who are students that we have special rates for students. This is the beginning of the subscription year. I do think you will consider joining us. Whether or not you decide to join us, I also hope that those of you who are working on Middle East issues uh, will register yourself on the BRISMIS database. Now 400 registrations on it after just six months. It is building up into a comprehensive database of research on the Middle East, individuals and organisations. So please do consider yourself putting yourself on there. Uh, The former head of our grad section, Uh, who happens uh, to now be uh, a a former LSE student, I think, having been awarded his doctorate uh, last year, uh, assures me that it's a very good way of getting yourself noticed when you are job hunting. So, important consideration for you, particularly in the current climate. Um, The running order for this evening. (laughs) Well, I'm delighted that um, Baroness Afshar is going to be our guest speaker this evening. You all know the topic. Uh, She will speak for approximately 30 minutes. Um, The speech will be recorded and podcasted in due course, Uh, so look out for that if you want to listen to it again or if you have friends, colleagues who have not been able to join us this evening who would be interested. There will be Q&A afterwards, Um, so plenty of opportunity for you to join the discussion. And I do want this to be a very proactive session, uh, please. And I'll tell you a bit more about how we're going to conduct Q&A when we get there. And then afterwards, there's a couple of other things we need to do at the end of the event and then there will be a drinks reception and networking opportunity. Um, and I hope uh, that at least most of you will be stay and join us for a drink. Um, I'm just going to move the running order about a bit on this. Uh, there is a Twitter hashtag for this event as well, which is hash LSE Iran. Um, I think that's probably all I need to tell you, other than that we will aim to wrap up the formal proceedings at 8 o'clock. So without any further ado, um, let me say a few words of introduction, uh, if I may, without hopefully embarrassing you too much, Halle. Um According to my notes, and it could be a very long introduction indeed, but I'm pleased to say that the, uh, the organisers have hammered it down to some key points, Harley teaches politics and women's studies at the University of York and serves as a crossbench peer in the House of Lords. In 2005, she was awarded an OBE for services to equal opportunities. She's also a visiting professor of Islamic law at the Faculté Internationale de Droit compare at Strasbourg she was born and raised in Iran, where she worked as a journalist and civil servant. She has served as the chair of the British Association of Middle Eastern Studies and Chair of the United Nations Association's International Services. Ladies and gentlemen, I ask you to welcome in the traditional manner our guest speaker for this evening, Hale Ashra.
1: Thank you very much for that kind uh, introduction. And thank you all of you for coming out in such a terribly cold night. I must say I was quite tempted to stay at home myself. (laughs) However, uh, part of being a grown-up is that you do have to come out uh, when required. Uh, What I like to do is is, uh, uh, discuss uh, something that actually, part of this, this paper comes out of a discussion that I had with one of my research students recently Uh, where she said that she's working with Iranian feminists, and she said, you know, the interesting thing about this is that I keep on, you know, she's a Western feminist, very keen, and she's like, you know, they keep on being quite uninterested in Western feminism, and, you know, they they, they seem to think that that Islam provides a framework for feminism, which is better. And um, she was rather perplexed by this. And and as a third-generation feminist whose grandmother uh, and mother fought against the veil, I, I had also grown up with a very secular Western um, view of feminism. But really it was it was when it was after the Islamic Revolution when I started uh, really working with and talking with many Iranian politicians and activists uh, that I had to really seriously return uh, to looking at Islam. And the teachings of Islam and the teachings of the Quran. Uh, and what is interesting is that uh, when you actually look at the textual teachings of the Quran, you find that there is an understanding of women, women's rights, which is uh, very, very modern, in fact, postmodern feminist. An understanding which goes beyond the notion of equality, which is something that many of us have spent our lives fighting for, to the notion of equal but different, which is where feminism in the West is at now, because those of us who came to England and became a minority started fighting for the right to be different, while at the same time the right to be called a feminist. And so it was really quite uh, interesting to find out that Islamic teachings recognize uh, the such rights and the notion of complementarity uh, when a man and a woman come together uh, is very much anchored in this notion of of, uh, equal but different. Now, this does not mean that women have ever, ever been the chattel of the men, or their husbands, or for that matter, their fathers. Um, and we have to remember that the first convert of Islam was Khadija. Now Khadija was a widowed uh, merchant who actually employed the prophet of Islam as her env- envoy. And, and so he, 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 represent, he was her trade representative in various uh, areas. And and it was her Khadija who asked the Prophet, uh, or who was who asked her envoy at the time, to marry her. And when he seemed rather doubtful and and was kind of, uh, uh, I mean, she was a lot older. uh, I I actually often tell my students that as the harassment um, person in the department. if anybody, if I actually eyed one of my 18-year-old students and said, what a good-looking young man, now we better get married, and we we don't have to report myself to myself for harassment. Uh, So so it it was, but it was a different time. And and so he married, uh, and and so when he said no, she actually went and talked to his uncle and said, this young man doesn't know what's good for him, and he should marry me. And, And so he did. And she was the first convert to Islam. Now, a religion that can accommodate a financially independent woman who has the right or gives herself the right to choose her own husband, uh, to negotiate her own terms, and to actually employ him as her envoy, would certainly give women uh, financial independence. Uh, and that means that women do not lose. They do not lose their identity. They do not lose their, 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 their resources. Marriage is not a loss the way that traditionally it has been for many women in the West until the 20th century. In fact, when, I was, when we were getting married, I pointed out to my husband that what I have is mine and what he has is mine too. Uh, and, and that is because Islam also recognizes that women make choices. They go through life uh, doing different things at different points and marriage and motherhood should not deprive them of access to resources. So there are three really crucial things that Muslim women have had for 14 centuries and for which we are still fighting today in the UK. First and foremost is that marriage is a contract. It's a contract, it's a binding contract between consenting partners. And what is more, in order for women in the first place To sign the contract, they have to be paid or offered a sum in order to agree to even enter into the negotiation. Furthermore, the contract has a whole lot of conditions and you can sign on to them. And and it's quite interesting, some of my students say that, you know, uh, who who have gotten married in Iran, they say that, you know, they sit there ticking all the conditions And in one case, the father-in-law that was in the process of becoming a father-in-law walked out in disgust at the way that the husband was giving all kinds of rights to his wife. So there's there's a difference between theory and practice. And what's interesting is that the Iranian government has been obliged to actually publish a format for marriage contract something that the Muslim Women's Network, with whom I work, has just also just done now for Muslim women in the West. But, you know, it's a contractual agreement. Furthermore, housework is paid work. There is wages for housework. Another campaign that the West is still fighting for. And if the changes that they're making right now look like anything, is that we will lose what little women, married women have, let alone get any more above it. It was very clear that those women who choose to, to, to do housework are entitled to wages. And finally, motherhood is a paid job. So that if you actually suckle your baby, you have to be paid for suckling your baby, or payment is available to ask someone else to nurse a baby. Now, that means that in terms of the Quranic teaching, women have independence, entitlements, and also have the right to have fluid identities. That is to say, to be a worker, an employer, a wife, a mother, but at each level, of these facets of their lives, they're entitled to payment. So that there is no invisibility of women's work. Women's work is valorized 14 centuries ago. Now it seems to me extraordinary that such amazing rights granted to women so long ago, have not yet been properly claimed. And what is interesting is the way that gradually, Islamic government in the construction of the laws have sidestepped the Quranic teaching and constructed laws that willy nilly separate women from these rights. So I would like to, to spend the rest of this lecture talking about what do women do if they are separated from these rights. And I think, first, they need education. In order to be able to actually read the Quranic text, in order to understand the laws, you need to be educated. And second, of course, they have to get access to the domain of judiciary. And that, as those of us who work in the West know, is the last bastion of male power, I think, the world over. So in the case of Iranian women, in the first instance after the revolution there was an enormous campaign about improving access to education. Education across the board and in this respect they were very successful now somewhere I have all the data about how successful they were but my notes are always in such a mess that I can't find them but um, oh miracle I found them (laughs) Um, so, so that, so that uh, as a result of um, the post-revolutionary processes, um, the, the percentage uh, of girls was about 50-50 in primary school. It, it fell to 43% in secondary school. But... As school graduate, um, five out of 10 girls completed their education compared to four out of 10 for the boys, so that when, we ca- when it came to the question of university entrance, you had better educated women who were actually fighting for university places. And unsurprisingly when we actually look at the, the, the intake of the universities, we've seen that since the revolution, well, no, at the beginning of the revolution, all schools, all universities were closed. And then when they reopened them, they said, oh, well, we, women couldn't get to more than half of the, of the faculties. So initially, education was seen closely, um, closed to women and an and, and, and entitlement for men rather than women and so Iranian women have had to fight continuously to gain access to more and more and more university places and they've done that stage by stage and the difficulty is that every time that they actually succeed which they do eventually there's a backlash and the government suddenly makes yet another decision that education is not suitable for girls, and yet another decision to close a raft of faculties. So, if we look at the experience of women facing tertiary education in Iran, we see that different cohorts of women have had different opportunities, and that Every time that these schools have been closed, there has been yet another return, step by step by step. Not surprisingly, the most difficult of the faculties to access has been the faculty of law. Because there has been an assumption made by uh, jurists, again across the Islamic world, that women do not have sound judgment. Now, that was a view shared by the world at some point, uh, largely because women have sounder judgments, but they were not, but they were against the traditions. Uh, and this is something that continues as well. Um, however, anybody who's ever been a mother knows that the only way you can actually deal with very stubborn children is by slow negotiation. And this is what women have done in Iran, slow negotiations, step by step. And they began by arguing that it was undesirable for men to decide the future of very young children and also for men to have women in their courts um, standing up and giving evidence about very personal matters. So that they began by saying it went against the notions of modesty, respect for women, uh, to have just male judges. The other p- point was that at the very beginning of the revolution, post-revolution era, there just weren't enough male judges uh, to preside over all the courts. So from the start, they always had women as advisors. And the idea was that women can have an advisory role, but they could not make the final decision. And it was in this advisory role that women began to promote their presence and began to insist that they could not fulfill their advisory <coughs> work, talking about women's experiences, unless they had access to the Faculty of Law. And since what well, two of the pivots, of Shi'ism in formulating laws, are that means wisdom or, 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 or a reason and which means rights or, 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 or fairness. Um, they use these two pivotal rights to say it is unreasonable to demand of women to have an advisory role if you don't educate them and of course Uh, uh, reason and justice demands that you educate them so that they can fulfill this role so that they can actually uh, become advisors. And, And this gradually enabled them to be advisors in the family courts. However, it became quite evident that they were actually making final decisions So very slowly, family courts were made as not really part of the judiciary, but the bit that the women do. And so you actually saw a gradual process of progress. And many of us who've been working with Iranian women uh, since the revolution were beginning to be quite optimistic about the outcomes. Unfortunately... In 2011, women did amazingly well, not only as school graduates, much better than the boys, but also as university graduates. And it is at this point that the current government in Iran got into histrionics. Uh, They feared that women who were educated... Would not marry young enough, would not have enough children, uh, would be too appetite to manage anyway, and would not uh, obey their husbands. And the reaction has been extraordinary, because after all these years when women have been active, have been working as lawyers, have been, even in the case of Shirin Abadi, she was recognized and given a Nobel Prize when she was a lawyer in Iran. So that it, it was actually uh, recognized as part of the process. Suddenly, for this academic year, the barriers have come down. And the barriers have come down in the name of Islamification. Now, Islamification, I know is not an English word, I've invented it, but I find it very useful, uh, is, is this idea that the Iranian government has sort of periodically returning to making the country into Muslims. Now, for heaven's sake, if you haven't managed this far, you know, you should maybe give up. But anyway, that's beside the point. And in the process of Islamification, they've decided that educated, work, educated young women caused a lot of problems. First of all, they didn't get employment. Now, they didn't say, why are not employers educating, uh, employing these better educated women and are still in, employing men? The question was not asked. Secondly, uh, they, if, they want, if they ever do marry, which they keep on defer marrying, uh, they want better educated men than themselves so that a raft of uneducated, poor Iranian women can't find wives. Um, And so we have to do something about them. And so, as a result, they've decided um, that women should not attend, again, a whole collection of universities, uh, university subjects, but the real problem is that some universities um, actually are not allowing women at all. So that after this very long process of struggle to achieve access to education, access to the judiciary, um, access to parliament, where women are actually very active, and it was the one right that women had fought for and didn't lose, Um, it's still, we have returned to where we had been at the beginning of the revolution. Now, it seems to me that at this stage, the Iranian government is dealing with women who are much better educated than women were at the beginning of the revolution, women who are much more experienced in fighting against injustice, and women who have much better Quranic and Islamic training. So, although at the moment... Um, In fact, when I was writing this paper, I was in despair. Um, I think that given the undeniable, inalienable rights given to women by the text of the Quran and the teachings of the Prophet, I am optimistic that the good fight would be fought. And perhaps this time, we might win for real. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you very much indeed. Now, to give you a few seconds to uh, think about questions, how you would like to phrase your question, because I'm sure there are lots of questions out there. Um, I'm going to, before I come to the process for questions mention something else. Some of you, when you came in, uh, will have noted, been caught by uh, Louise Hazy on the way in, uh, about our raffle this evening. Now, the raffle draw will take place at the end of the formal session. Uh, We did ask for those of you who have business cards to put business cards in. Now, we missed some of you because it was quite tricky catching you all. If you missed the opportunity to put in your business card – Or if you don't have a business card, we can give you a blank piece of card to write your name and email on and would like to go into the drawer. Whilst the microphones are moving around with questions, um, if you wave politely at uh, the excellent Louise, who's actually at the back of the room at the moment, uh, she will try and get a card off you and get you into the raffle. And I have to tell you uh, that the first prize, um, unfortunately we don't have a copy with us tonight because we're waiting for it to be delivered, but the first prize is Halle's excellent most recent book. Um, and the second and third prizes you will find are also uh, very suited to the topic this evening. Now, as far as the Q&A is concerned, I want to keep it snappy, please. Um, so please restrain yourself to ask one and I mean one short question. And as I frequently say when I'm doing presentations myself, and I, we get to Q&A, I did it th- this morning, one question is not, so what do you think the lessons of Iran are for British society, and what does it imply that King Abdullah has now brought women into the advisory council in Saudi Arabia? That's two <laughs> questions, not one question. So please keep it uh, punchy. And in return, Haley has agreed to try and keep her answers punchy so we can get as many questions in as possible Uh, which is the important point. A microphone will arrive. Please use the microphone uh, because we are podcasting, as I said earlier. And please, before you ask your question, would you tell us who you are and your current affiliation? Um, Now, without further ado, the ladies with the mics are poised. So could I have uh, the first question, please? Gentleman at the back over there. Thank you.
2: Thank you you very much. Uh, My name is Razi Ardaqani. I work with Risk Advisory. My question is, uh, I've lived in Iran for many years. Uh, um, A lot of academics go in length talking about Islam and democracy, Islam and um, rights of women. And they usually conclude that it is compatible if you really study it. But my question is why, whenever Islam gets involved, whether in politics, whether in society, one of the biggest dangers is for the women to lose their rights. Why is it that the world of academia manages to realize the pool of um, knowledge that uh, Islam has to offer, but never in politics it really materializes? Thank you.
1: Women always lose their rights the world over whether it's in the name of Islam or in the name of communism or in the name of any of the isms that you wish to to name Uh, they do so uh, because they actually have a double burden they are mothers they're carers and workers and therefore most sane governments prefer to just give them one job and an unpaid one So I think that that it is true that they have lost their rights in in the post-revolutionary era in Iran, but it's also true that you lose them almost everywhere. It's rights that you have. Having them is not enough. We have to fight to guard them.
0: Uh, Gentlemen also roughly in the same position um, up there.
2: Hi there, my name is Maziar. I'm a graduate student at the Center for International Studies at Diplomacy and SOAS. Um, in the past century or so, at most significant uh, historical moment, um, almost all the political forces from the left, the progressive ones, to the conservative one, have compromised on the issues of women, going back to constitutional revolution to Islamic revolution of 79 do you think the green movement was different in a sense that the Iranian polity has reached that level of maturity that they don't that they do really believe that women's rights are human rights?
1: As I said earlier, I think that people do know that women's rights are human rights. The difficulty is that they prefer to deny it ignore it, sideline it and I think that the only way that women can succeed is by never, never, never stopping to fight it's a, it's a continuing struggle look, my grandmother fought this battle and I fully expect my granddaughter to be fighting it too it's a long one, but you know, we get used to it <laughs>
0: Gentleman in the middle uh, there, and then I'll come to the lady over there next. Hello. Um, my name is Josh Siskin. I'm a civil servant and a former student of Professor Afshar. Um, if I could move away from Iran slightly for the moment, can I perhaps get your readout of the Iranian, uh, Egyptian constitutional referendum, please? And perhaps maybe your pessimistic as well as your optimistic interpretation
1: of that? I'm afraid Egypt is not my speciality. Uh, So uh, what I worry about is that that the group, uh, well, it's actually the variety of Islams which are being contested under one banner. And so I'm not at all sure what the project is and I'm not at all sure what the views on women are. Uh, So I'm I'm in very unsafe grounds. I can't really tell you very much about it. Sorry.
0: Um, I'm actually going to take the liberty of uh, adding a point on that because I was involved in a discussion earlier on today uh, with a group of experts, which I'm not, let me hasten to add, on Egypt. Um, Interestingly enough, uh, there was a sense among many in the room that had we been told two years ago at the time of Tahrir Square that this is how things would be in January 2013, that we'd probably have gone... Well, it could be better, but it could be a lot worse. Uh, And you might be more happy uh, with the situation in Egypt today than perhaps you would have expected at the time when Tahrir Square was in full flow. Um, There was also a view that there were two really key indicators to look out for going forward on the direction Egypt was going to take. And I don't think we should assume that the constitution is by any means carved in stone at this stage. The first is whether Egypt gets an IMF program, because the economy is a major factor in Egypt today. And in order to get that, there are going to have to be some painful uh, concessions by President Morsi and his administration. But the second is, uh, and perhaps more importantly from the perspective of this question, whether as a result of the events of the last couple of months, the secular opposition can finally put its internal differences to one side and begin to unite into a credible alternative to the Muslim Brotherhood, and in doing so, push for basic human rights, uh, as they see it, including women's rights. And I think we're some way from that at the moment, unfortunately. But things may be beginning to show signs of heading in a better direction. Forgive me for intruding on your lecture, but since I was talking about it today, it seemed a good opportunity to raise it. The lady over there in the blue cardigan, and then... uh, Behind, Next person back, please. With
3: regard to the issue of closing faculties and universities against women in, uh, in Iran and the uh, reasons or justification from government that you mentioned, you don't think that it is also worthy to examine mm-hmm. and re-examine the reasons or the justifications the government gave for closing uh, faculties or you understand as the denial of women's rights? And understand it understand or examine it from the point of view of the government has the right to destabilize stabilize the economy or re the social relations uh, by shaping or reshaping gender relations. Uh, and also uh, considering women's views and responses to such changes, maybe the majority of uh, Iranian women find it useful for the overall economy of, of Iran.
0: Could you just tell us who you are before you hand the microphone back, please? Uh,
3: Atmad Mohanna from uh, Middle East Centre.
0: Thank you very much. One person back with the mic. Oh, I'm uh, no. no, no <laughs> let, let's get an answer first, but keep oh, the mic. Thank
1: you. Uh, well, um, I think that, that, that uh, as far as I know, I know of no woman who actually thinks that it's worth sacrificing her future for the very uncertain reconstruction of social relations that the Iranian government has attempted and repeatedly failed to establish. Uh, Why should they? I wouldn't. Would you? Would you be willing to give up your future in order that a government like the Iranian government, or for that matter, the current government in Britain or any government, (laughs) reaches its goals? Uh, I think that governments are the servants of people. It's not the other way around. And I don't see Iranian women giving up. uh, and, And I don't see any reason why they should. I think social relations shape themselves, have a dynamics of their own. No government can control them. And the Iranian government is no exception.
0: Please. Yes, but take the microphone and tell us who you are first, please. And then I will come back to you. Sorry.
4: Um, since I'm Iranian and I, I'm feminist, I call myself, and uh, I've been um, working on women and Islam in my life. So I was in Iran only two months ago. The, um, now I'm a visiting fellow at the LSD Middle East, um, East Centre. Um, The thing that for this specific topic, I have, as you said, I haven't seen any woman really, um, you know, support this. But actually, government uh, never, never claimed that this is a state policy, state uh, official policy. Uh, Just a number of universities justify in in terms of um, having, uh, you know, uh, beyond the limit, I mean, extra, uh, uh, you know, uh, female students in certain uh, t- topics, and, and, and also they justify that, okay, for some, uh, uh, for some disciplines like, uh, you know, some engineering, uh, women cannot get jobs, so they close this, um, you know, um, uh, subjects to, to women, but officially they never claim because they know that, you know, women really, um, you know, uh, or people in general are against this.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, Malay, do you want to?
1: Well, I think I, I do, amazingly, I keep on finding my way around my notes, but the Minister Kamran Donishju has said that, that, that they are actually in the process of segregation and enforcing segregation and that they're setting up a, a, a new unit to focus on, on, on supervising the process of segregation. Um, they all, he also said that the bans, and he, he said that there were bans were imposed on uh, the intake um, uh, because of the gender-specific nature of the labor market and because women were not getting jobs after they were. Um, so uh, I think that it is government policy, what they have not done is actually get it through Parliament. Yes. They have not; they haven't actually regularised it. They, they but the the minister has made the statement, and the process is going on. This is just a statement, but um, he said that what he designed, and
4: he did it, He said this is just personal. Personal, um, uh, you know. Uh, but it, it has
1: it hasn't stopped the, the petrochemical. Of faculties, uh, university to ban women, it hasn't stopped women being banned from entering the university so the fact that he says, oh well you know man dasambud," doesn't really work for you
0: <laughs> On that note could I suggest that you continue this discussion over uh, a glass later and we move on. Thank you very much for your contribution and thank you very much for your patience.
5: Oh yeah, no worries um, Hi, uh, what a pleasure to hear you speak uh, my name is Iran. I'm a graduate student at LSE. Um, I often see in the media and, and amongst people around me this perception that the Muslim women are oppressed, they're helpless. This, this patriarchal viewpoint is always there. Uh, and it quite, quite uh, honestly it bugs me. Um, what do you say to these people when they come up with all these ideas about these helpless, oppressed women who are quite frankly not that?
1: Um. Well, I, I, I think it, it, it's because people uh, mistake modesty for quietitude. Uh, Muslim women don't dress in a very voyant, in a very kind of, uh, you know, they try to be modest, they try to be quiet, they try to be... Um, but if you cross them, <laughs> you really come across fireworks. <laughs> and I think most people learn that fairly quickly.
0: Lady in the front Thank you,
1: Halle. Uh, Sen, LSC. Halle, a wonderful talk. It's always great to listen to you. You talked about changes um, since the revolution, including uh, women being more educated and more experienced. Can you tell us anything about whether they're any differently organized in terms of their resistance and has that, is that significant? Um, yes. Uh, they, I mean, before the revolution, there were women's groups, women's organizations, mostly set up by the Queen and, and full of very elite women uh, who, uh, you know, did a lot of good uh, and, and did fight for their rights. But, but, but it was very much uh, the domain of elite women. What's really interesting about the current situation in Iran is that there is an alliance across the divides. And, and uh, particularly, for example, in the provision of Quranic classes by the better educated women for the less educated women to try and actually teach everybody about their rights. Um, so, so that the, 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 there is a real difference in terms of alliances and also in terms of campaigns and the choices that women make. Um, the, the women, there are, no, there are very few former organizations. Although before the Beijing conference there were lots of formal organizations because the government was paying money for, for them. But now that they don't, they don't exist. But I think that, that, that there is a much deeper understanding of the need to cooperate informally uh, but very effectively. And particularly the very, very good contacts between politicians, both women politicians and those men who support them, and the, the, the mass of women activists.
2: Hi, thank you so much. My name is Neda Neymati, and I'm an undergraduate from the United States. And um, this is sensitive, so I'm going to try to articulate this as best as I can. But basically it seems that um, you prefer this Iranian type of feminism to Western feminism because of these shortcomings that you mentioned with um, women's financial independence. And so my question is, uh, I'm originally from Mississippi, and so women there are really, I mean, the southern culture, they're very dependent financially um, on their husbands, you know, not collectively, but uh, sometimes. And so um, my question is, do you think that there can be another medium for obtaining this type of feminism in the West that can be equivalent to this Iranian feminism that um, can be obtained without having a medium like, uh, Islam or religion so whether they can obtain that kind of respect or women's rights through something else and if there is something else that's not Islam what that is um, yeah. thank you well I think that that's really certainly in the
1: course of this century feminists the world over are talking about feminisms feminism is no longer in singular and they're talking about celebrating differences recognizing differences are uh, valuing them and agreeing to disagree sometimes uh, with choices that women make so that the kind of feminism that many of us for, you know, were part of in the last century is very much part of the last century. And now, with the women of the world being able to get together with things like SIBA, with all kinds of international organizations, we have learned to accept that one size does not fit all. There isn't one solution for the women the world over. And that women, in the context in which they live and work, have the right to make their own choices and to expect (laughs) feminists worldwide to respect those choices. So, feminism is a comfortable place whether you take religion as part of it or not.
5: Hello, um, I'm Patricia Kokard. I'm a lecturer in and a former alumni, well, an alumni. Um, I was gonna ask you about, um, since you are a professor of women's studies as well, if you could just give a little bit um, of an indication about the state of women's studies in Iran or on Iran from um, abroad. Um,
1: Well, women's studies has not been encouraged Uh, by the Iranian government. Uh, And so what has happened is that it has been integral as part of various other kinds of education. Uh, uh, And in particular, it has been informal. Uh, There's been an attempt to set up uh, uh, courses on women's studies and and, and so on. But on the whole, uh, where women have been more successful is that they've continued the pre-revolutionary practice, which began by a number of ayatollahs who began teaching women about Islam and Islamic law and Islamic rights. Um, They have continued informal uh, education and understanding. And, of course, there are. I mean, there's a faculty of Quranic studies that that women have attended as well. But um, women's studies as such uh, is conspicuous by its absence.
6: Hi, my name is Harry from
2: the Foreign and Commonwealth Office.
6: Um, I was wanting to know what you thought the effect of the current economic situation in Iran and the sanctions were on women's rights.
1: Well, I'm afraid this is something I feel very strongly about. Um, And I'm on record uh, as saying it before, so I don't have any problem. Um, If there are sanctions on uh, countries with nuclear power... Who have not uh, admitted to it or declared it or are not entitled, then I think it ought to be universal. The idea of choosing particular kind is a statement I made in Parliament, so it, it's actually on record. It seems to me uh, if the international community is really so concerned and i'm quite I'm, I'm against nuclear power uh, and, and I'm all for, for banning it, they should have the same sanctions on all transgressors. And that, as someone with a Shia upbringing of justice at the core of everything I do, I I find that absolutely unacceptable. Furthermore, unfortunately, sanctions really hit the poor. So that the Iranian elite, the ones who are making all these decisions, are not particularly bothered. You can buy things when you have money. It doesn't matter what barriers there are. But the poor are getting poorer, and the problem is that when you're really hungry, you don't do revolutions. Revolutions are much more often led by people who have enough and want more. But if you're destitute, and if if the Iranian people are going to be reduced to destitution, I think men and women are going to lose heart and the Iranian government is going to win.
0: Do you want to say anything more on the specific impact on women? Because I think that was the main point of Harry's question. Yeah,
1: yep. Well, I, I, I mean, I think, I think in the case of women, it, it's exactly the same as you always have um, in the labour market. When jobs are tight, uh, women lose out. I mean, thank heavens for segregated education because the only public arena in which they can work is health and education Uh, but other than that it's becoming very much harder for women to find employment um, particularly if you know in in, in areas where where they had just begun to be present in in, in higher education uh, it's just shrinking
7: and so it's making it very very difficult
0: Lady next to you
7: Anna Hazyanova, I am a researcher looking at Afghanistan. So the issues which you're bringing up um, about Iran are very much resonant of the issues and debates um, happening in Afghanistan. And one of the issues which I'm finding um, in Afghanistan is that women are as much as oppressors and suppressors of rights for other women as sometimes men, and at times men become the champions who actually promote this idea of justice and equality. And in this debate, I'm really curious to see what is the role of Iranian men in promoting uh, women's rights and access to education in particular.
1: Um, I think that it's true that traditional women have been oppressors. Uh, There is a difference between Afghanistan and Iran. Iranian women have a century-long history of struggling for their rights so that by now even the grandmothers had been familiar with, uh, the, I mean, with the benefits of having rights and entitlement. So in that sense, I think uh, that the situation is, is, is different between the two countries. But of course, in, 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 in uh, governments and, and, and in lands dominated by men, it would be impossible for women to function without making alliances. And what's interesting is that some of the best allies that some of the most prominent Iranian women have had is their prominent fathers who have been leading Ayatollahs. And, and so I think that, that, that uh, there are in this world a great many men who support us and accept us. And, and in Iran, the, it would not have been possible then and it would not be possible now to think of success without alliances with men.
0: Gentlemen, halfway up, next to the aisle, please.
2: Edward Pingerson, LSC alumnus. If, economic, if the economic situation were to improve, and if you had a crystal ball two or three generations from now, can you see real gender equality?
1: Um, it really depends what you mean by equality. I think that women should have the choice if they wish to be equals. In the, I think they should have equal rights, but they should have the right not to exercise those rights. And the wor- I mean, the world is more than half I mean, more than half of the women in the world would prefer uh, to be mothers, carers, um, and, and actually raise good children, which is a matter of pride for all parents. So I don't think that is a question of women as a whole uh, having equal rights. I think it's having equal rights, but also being able to exercise those rights at choice, my problem is that women who become carers and mothers are in much of the world lose out. So yes, we'd like equal rights, but we would like also the recognition and the remuneration of different kinds of work, including domestic work.
0: I see a hand right at the top at the back.
8: Hi, my name is Shimrit Margalit, and I'm from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Uh, I wanted to refer to what you said about the nuclear weapon, of course. Uh, you said uh, countries uh, that don't declare, and etc. Um, I assume you meant Israel, and I wanted to put the difference between uh, the two matters, as I see it. Um, Israel has... Um, allegedly has a weapon, a nuclear one, but um, the difference is Iran has threatened uh, other countries and Israel didn't. They declared they wanted to abolish certain countries, not only Israel, but they threatened other countries, declaring. And this is uh, the difference the the matters of the regime, because the nuclear weapon is is legal. There is no law against it. And the difference is what you're doing with it and who you threaten it with. And in general, I want to make a comment um, about the people that hope uh, for uh, women's rights in Iran I personally don't see it uh, coming, because if you see, for example, Ahmadinejad, if someone ever saw his wife, she's, like, she's not even existing in the public sphere. So what kind of an example is that? The, she's okay, invisible. Can I, I've,
1: I've got the gist of your question, thank you. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, it seems to me uh, that, that your sense of history is a little bit problematic. Um, Iran does not have a record of invading any of its neighbours for the past 1,500 years. Sorry,
0: could you, uh, I must ask you to let Halle answer, please. We did let you make quite a long statement, so let her answer first, please. Thank
1: you. So it seems to me that if we actually look at the experience of Israel and Palestine, uh, we see a very different picture. So that uh, the fact that Israel has nuclear power and has a history of actually invading its neighbor, Palestine, I think bodes very ill in terms of your analysis. Uh, it seems to me that people, people who have nuclear power have to be admitted, admitted to the world and have to be responsible, respectively, both of them.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Lady over there, please.
5: Hi, my name is Zaina. I'm a graduate student at the LSE. Um, I wanted to ask, um, the way Sharia law gets implemented in Islam or in any other um, Muslim-dominated nation, including Arab Muslim nations, uh, means that it's quite easy for... So to go back to, for example, the marriage contract that you were talking about, um, if Islam, in theory, does provide for, so much, so for a lot of rights for feminists under that, the actual translation of that through Sharia law um, in a number of countries, including the, where I'm from in Jordan, does not give women, in practice, that kind of... Um, rights um, and actually even if they do it's more lip service than when it comes down to an actual divorce or anything else and so I was wondering you mentioned like the access to, ju- to the judiciary as being one of the key ways of ensuring that the translation happens better I was wondering if there are any other ways apart from female judges on the bench that would help kind of make theory actually translate more into practice
1: Thanks. I, I, I think I think um, uh, there is a real problem with the formulation of Sharia laws uh, right across the Middle East. However, much of the Middle East, as far as I know, including Jordan, has personal laws which are, which are, are, are informed by Sharia law, uh, but actually do not necessarily have to follow it. And I think that is in the level at the, at the domain of lawmaking that we actually have to be uh, sure that we reclaim our li- our rights. And we, ha- we can only reclaim our rights if we go back to the way that Sharia has been formulated, look at the way that they are using and, 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 and the parameters that they're using for, for, for implementation or, or formulation of Sharia law. Um, And actually, I think the the interesting thing is that that the um, Iranian government, uh, when it came to to land reform, is actually the government, began borrowing ideas from Sunni interpretations of the law, such as Esteslah and Estesan, which enabled the notion of necessity or public good to come into formulation of the Iranian uh, legal structure. And I think if the Iranian can borrow from you, then surely the Jordanians can borrow from us. Um, We need to be much more, and by we I mean the women's movement and those men who support us, must must be much more proactive in looking at the way that across the Islamic world, uh, women are using their Islamic rights and also using the Islamic legal methodologies to regain those rights. Uh, So perhaps more education. Islamic law education uh, would be very helpful.
0: I see a hand in the middle. Um, well up, please.
2: Thank you. Uh, Grace from China. I have a question about religion and Quran. Uh, you meant, uh, because in Quran it mentioned that uh, items such as men are in charge of women or good women should be obedient... So my question is, because of religion, do you think there will be a glass ceiling for the revolution if religion itself is not changing?
1: I think the problem of particular Quranic verses is that people read one bit and then not the other. Uh, So that when it comes to, to, to the advice... Uh, given by, by by the God by God, they forget about it. You have you have ideas about there's this ver- the much much quoted question of beating women, which actually is very problematic, uh, because the word darabe, which has been translated as beating, can be can be ha- can have uh, a number of meet- uh, a number of meanings. Uh, like influencing or impacting, or so taking Darabit just as having beating is in itself quite problematic. You come to the end of the verse, it says, You had better not. And people simply forget. So taking one sentence out of a, a Quranic verse and translating it without actually paying attention to the context, the variety of meaning, of, is very problematic. So I think that the idea of of, uh, just taking the idea of good women being obedient out of context and the idea that this obedience has to be paid for uh, and that this obedience doesn't come just just on offer and that it's part of a contractual agreement between partners is is, um, uh, problematic. So what you need, what we need as Islamic feminists for actually trying to change the context, is to read it but also look at what the meanings of the words were at the time and and how these meanings have changed with times. So it's hard work, but
4: we can do it.
0: I see a purple arm there. Thank you.
4: Hi, um, my name is Alethea Lim and I'm an undergraduate student from UCL. Um, what is the approach of Iranian feminism towards the issue of head covering of Muslim women, not just in Iran, but all over the world? Um, do they consider head covering of women as a form of oppression?
1: <laughs> no.
4: <laughs>
1: I think that women should have the choice as to whether they wish to cover or they don't. And, and it's quite interesting. When you read the relevant verse of the Quran, it asks women to cover their zinat. Zinat means decoration, and not to stamp their feet if they have bangles on their feet. I have not worn jewelry for, I don't know, last 40 years, and I certainly don't have bangles on my feet. Uh, it seems to me that we have to actually think about what is decoration, and I'm sometimes amused by wonderful Muslim women who do cover and then have a little ring in their nose. And if you read the text, it should be the other way around. But if women choose to cover, I think it's their right. Just as if they choose not to cover, it is their right. I think women's dress code should not become such an obsession because in any case, they bypass it. You know, when the Iranian government imposed the veil you had the the web was full of pictures I mean you had lots of pictures of the way the Iranian women covered which was really kind of much more interesting than the uncovered women Uh, and so so I just think and you know when the French government started banning covered women they found that the women that they were arresting were French born raised white citizens who converted to Islam and they chose to cover So I just think, give up on women's dress code. We can do what we like. And let's move on.
0: Um, Yes, up there.
9: Thank you. Thank you. I'm Ghada Carmi from University of Exeter. Uh, Thank you very much, Haley, for a very interesting talk. Um, But I, uh, and I appreciate that Um, you want to make the point that the position of women in Islam should not be seen uh, automatically as one of oppression uh, and where the women are suffering and so on, I understand that. However, I think, given your spirited defense of Sharia law, I think really, don't you, that we have to admit that the uh, a document which was relevant to women in 7th century Arabia it need not necessarily remain relevant to uh, women uh, at, other in, uh, at other times, and certainly not today. You'll note that Sharia law has been developed and um, uh, has been upgraded, if that's the term, um, in many Islamic countries on All issues other than personal uh, Sharia law, which actually governs the lives of women. And however much we try to get away from the fact, the reality is that there are certain things in Sharia law which are not good for women. I think we have to admit that, frankly.
4: Um.
1: Good to see you. Um, uh, It's okay, we go a long way back. (laughs) Thank you for coming. Um, And thank you for your question. I am not defending Sharia law. I have not been defending Sharia law. I have been saying that Sharia law was constructed by men for men. But I am defending the Quran because it seems to me that some text may have infinite meanings to some people. I'm not saying that everybody in the audience should now immediately go home and read their Quran, uh, nor that, that, that you know, it's obligatory for people to follow it. What I'm defending is the Quranic rights that we have, which Sharia law has deprived us from. And therefore, I stand by my view. My defense is the defense of what the Quranic verses say. On the other hand, I do not defend Sharia law at all because there were no women involved in shaping it.
0: Gentleman down here at the front. Thank you.
3: (coughs) Hi, um, my name is Nima Nasseri and I'm a PhD student at King's College London. Um, You just mentioned the infinite meaning of Qur'an. Do you think that's where the problem starts? Because if there is so many interpretation, and when we talk about Islamic law and um, education, is that infinite meanings and all these sort of different definitions, depending on who defines it, that's where the problem starts. Because <coughs> what you're defending as right based on Quran, someone else bringing it as kind of saying, well, there are things in Quran that oppresses women. So I'm just saying, I'm just thinking whether Quran can be a kind of the basis to, it's kind of like a double edged sword. Can it be the basis to kind of defend the women's rights? Thank you.
1: Well, uh, we all live a century after, or not quite, the Declaration of Human Rights in the West, which seems to be universal, that was thought to be universal then, and is thought to be universal now. And the fact that the Koran has many meanings, uh, it, 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 it's, it, it seems to me enriching. Uh, you know, if, if if you read any kind of poetry, uh, Persian, English, Arabic, uh, they all have infinite meanings, and, and many of us spend a, uh, a lifetime finding different meanings in the same verses or poem uh, from one year to another. So it seems to me that uh, having a variety of meanings is not problematic. Implementing laws. Uh, on on any basis is always difficult as the current equal right uh, uh, decisions by the European Court uh, shows on religion. That is to say, whatever laws you make, they can always be contested. And I think they improve by being contested. So that, you know, many of us fought for the equality laws, but we can see that equality laws have to be balanced against our duties, obligations, and so on. So it seems to me that that's actually a very fruitful uh, debate which allows progress. Uh, otherwise, we'd be static, we'd be stuck where we were at the turn
7: of the century.
0: <laughs> Lady in the green clover again,
7: please. It's not so much of a question to you, but more of an um, answer which I want to also uh, offer is that it's interesting for me to see how the debate about Islamic law comes in the question of interpretation of Quran and the variety of interpretations. And we always forget about the fact that the Western legal tradition is very much based on the interpretation of Torah and interpretation of the Bible. And by saying that um, we don't, shouldn't we move away from that, I think the question is more the question of how can we move towards secular interpretations of things rather than whether or not we should consider many various interpretations which Quran offers because the Bible offers just as many of those interpretations
0: Um, Wait for the mic please I do want to get you on record I
3: just want to raise one point that I think uh, what's happening at the current days in the Muslim countries and especially after the victory of uh, Islamist uh, parties is not only to think about the interpretation of Islam but the actual practice Can you, of you Islamism- sorry
0: we're not getting you on the mic at the moment <laughs> try again
3: I, I think we have to go beyond the issue of interpretation of Islam because the interpretation is indefinite and there are you know, millions of interpretations but to focus on the understanding the actual practice of Islamist, Islamic women, uh, especially at the current days? The
1: actual practice of Islamist women varies so much across the world that, that, that I think it's very hard to focus on it. I think we have to accept it, we have to respect them for it, uh, but in order to focus, we need a look.
0: There. And this will be the penultimate question. I will allow one more question after this. Um, right. My name's Graham Talent. I'm unemployable. <laughs> <laughs> um, it just strikes me, is your argument that Islamic, that Iranian women should spend their time interpreting the Koran? And it strikes me if they spend their time interpreting, the, the, looking for the exegesis of the Koran, they're not going to achieve anything in terms of their human rights. That it seems like the protest movement of the last few years was much more guided by um, the UN Charter of Human Rights or something like that, that was much more influential. I mean, aren't they going to get lost in, in some kind of strange exegesis of the Quran and do nothing?
1: Well, luckily, Iranian women are well able to do two things at the same time. <laughs> so they can look at the Quran and they do look at the international context, and they fight on both fronts. And you would find that most women of necessity in their lives have to actually do multitasking all the time. So it becomes part of life.
0: Right, the final question is yours.
1: Okay, my name is Samin Damgani, an Iranian grandmother. As the last question, wondering what you think about Ahmadinejad's wife. (laughs) <laughs> I have absolutely no views about Ahmadinejad's wife um, she, uh, as I have no views about the wives of the current Prime Minister uh, or the wife of anybody else I think women stand for who they are and I don't recognise wife as actually a title that, that, that gives them any kind of uh, position I don't know what she has done, I don't know what she does, so I can't comment on her. But being a wife, I think, is just an add-on, it doesn't tell you anything.
0: Right, now, as I said to you at the beginning, we've got a couple of other things which we need to do this evening, which are going to be very pleasant things. But before I get to that, is there anybody in the room who wants to go into the raffle who has not yet had the opportunity to put their name in? Because this is going to be your positive last chance uh, before we start drawing raffle tickets very shortly. Okay? Everybody's happy on that count. Now, um, this is a double event in many respects this evening because... Uh, I'm very pleased to be able to announce uh, that Hale is also the winner of the Brismis Award for Services to Middle East Studies for 2012. And um, as we present this award to her, I'd like to invite um, a very old friend of mine, Lord Michael Williams, a distinguished scholar and diplomat in his own right, and an honorary life member of Brismas, Uh, to say a few words of appreciation for Halle's years of service to Middle Eastern studies. Michael, please come and take the microphone.
6: Thank you, Alistair. It's a real pleasure to be here tonight. And first of all, to thank Halle uh, for the lecture and the Q&A she's just given but also for her contribution over many, many years, if I may say so, decades, uh, to Middle Eastern (laughs) studies, uh, and particular to the study of uh, Islam. I I did my PhD up the road at SOAS, and it was on uh, Islam and resistance in Indonesia during the colonial uh, uh, period, and particularly the first half of the 20th century, And I have to say, when you speak about the role of women in uh, Iranian society, their determination, their spirit, their commitment, uh, I find many parallels with what I have observed over the years in Indonesia. Both countries, Muslim but not uh, Arab. Now, over the years, your academic work has been prolific, if I may say so. Uh, I found out that you, you were on the editorial board of no fewer than ten journals. Now, I'm on the editorial board of three, and I find that one too many, frankly. So, uh, it, it shows uh, your, your commitment and depth uh, of scholarship. Over the years, too, you have written, I believe, no less than 13 books. Uh, and the contributions have varied. Uh, the role of women and the role of Islam uh, development in Iran, in the wider Middle East, and uh, in the developing world. These are very considerable uh, achievements. But your career has not just been in academia. Far from it. And uh, the fact now that you're in the uh, the upper house and the House of Lords, I-, I think is a reflection and a recognition of that. Uh, over the years, I think you have made many contributions uh, to the role of women uh, in British society, uh, to advocating greater equality for women uh, in the UK, uh, and an end to discrimination. Your voice was also, has been very strong following the events of 9-11 in 2001 when the tragedy that befell uh, New York was used by many uh, to uh, make criticism of uh, Muslims here and uh, elsewhere. and You've been a powerful advocate uh, in their defense. Uh, Another contribution I remember is when you appeared on Desert Island Discs, uh, I remember that all too well, when your tastes, if I remember, ran from the Beatles' uh, Yellow Submarine to uh, J.S. Bach. But also a great, uh, if I, I remember, a great Persian classic singer of the 60s, uh, Hassan Golnarahi. is that correct? And his song, uh, uh, Marababu. Uh, Marababus. Uh, I, I know this because, uh, amongst other things, I worked in Bush House in uh, the World Service. And I was writing principally about Asia, but my office was down the corridor from the wonderful Persian service. And this was a song that uh, I heard many times when I worked there in the early 80s. And it was wonderful to be reunited with it a quarter of a century later when you uh, appeared on uh, Desert Island Discs. Hale Barnes Afshar. Uh, we thank you for your lecture uh, and above all, uh, thank you for your lifetime contribution to Middle Eastern studies uh, in the UK and the award of the uh, Brismas Honorary uh, Life Membership, I-, I think is more than well deserved.
0: As Michael has uh, intimated uh, just a few moments ago, not only are we uh, giving Halle uh, the Brisbane Award for last year, but I'm also very pleased to announce that the Brisbane Council has decided to offer Halle Honorary Life Membership of the Society with the award tonight.
1: Thank you, Michael, for those very kind words. I certainly swear not, is not deserved. Um, I must say that I, I would like to say that I could not have done the work that I have been doing on Islam and feminism without Brisness. And to me, Brisness has been a safe haven in which unfashionable subjects, because when I was talking about Islam and feminism, it was an oxymoron. I mean, you know, when you're a little old lady, people kind of maybe sometimes listen to you. But when you're a young academic, you really need a safe scholarly arena in which to discuss new ideas, to expect to have fair criticism and to have help. And in this, I really was enormously helped by my mentor, Tim Niblock, who unfortunately couldn't be here tonight, but also by the whole atmosphere and support that Brismas meetings offered to people on the margins. The reason that I defend minorities and the people on the margin is that certainly in terms of academe, what I was saying was absolutely unacceptable. It was unacceptable at the time, and it has been a very long battle. And in that battle, Brismas has been absolutely invaluable. Uh, I could never have actually gone and got consultancies or money or anything else for the kind of work I was doing. But I did need intelligent thinking support, and Brismas has given me that, for which I'm very grateful. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you very much for those kind words about the society, uh, Hallé. I hope that will encourage many of the younger uh, um, members of the audience in particular to uh, talk to us about signing up. Now, before I let you go, um, Louise, do we have the wherewithal to draw the raffle now, please? Um, And if you could bring that down. Um, I'm actually going to ask you yourself, Louise, to draw the third prize ticket, and I'm going to ask Michael to draw the second prize ticket, and I can think of nothing more fitting, Harle, since it's your <laughs> book, uh, <laughs> than to ask you if you would do us one more favour tonight and uh, draw the final ticket for the first prize. I could <laughs> Good, okay. Cretu um, <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to come and get your prize? Well, my and you get your photograph taken as well,
3: okay? <laughs>
0: um. Sarah Duffy. Sarah Duffy here?
8: Aww.
0: Well, I'm not going to redraw it because we asked for an email address. We have an email address. We will contact her by email and we will get the price delivered to her. I know you're all very disappointed, but too bad. <laughs> Edward Pincherson. (laughs) Nice try. Okay, well, I'm sorry that uh, Edward has had to leave us early, but uh, we will deliver the prize to him. Now, I have one more announcement to make before we wrap up, if I can find my piece of paper. I uh, have been asked to tell you, and especially since this has been such a good event, I'm sure you will wish to know, That The next MEC lecture will be held on Wednesday the 23rd of January. That's next Wednesday at 6.30. And Dr. Tariq Tell will take a historical look at Jordan and reflect on whether the country is immune to the type of uprisings seen in Tunisia, Libya, Egypt and beyond. Do follow the MEC programme. It's extremely good and well worth attending. Now, before you go, may I ask you one more time if you would put your hands together to thank our host for this evening the LSE and most of all
9: our guest speaker.